Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric V. Due to the COVID situation, we are doing our best to be safe and recording this episode remotely. We hope to get back to our studio soon. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. Today, we're going to be with John Campbell. John, we've uh, worked together for 10 years. You're no stranger to the Simon Law Firm or to me. You have an interesting background as far as both a lawyer and your ability to do analysis about legally related issues. I understand that you work with the Civil Justice Research Institute that has done some really interesting work on COVID and jurors' attitudes. But before we start, why don't you say a, a little bit about who you are and how your career arc led you to do this sort of research? Yeah, I'm John Campbell. I'm the director of the Civil Justice Research Institute at the University of Denver Law School. I am a co-founder and member of Empirical Jury that studies cases for attorneys, and I am a member of Campbell Law LLC. And so with those sort of hats of an academic researcher, a private jury researcher, and a, a trial lawyer, it got me, of course, we're all talking about COVID. Uh, And we're all talking about what it does to jurors, how it affects trial settings, whether we should proceed with trials, what those trials should look like. And so, you know, I'm in the business of trying not to guess. And so what we've done is, is we have surveyed over a period of a month or two, something like 1500 jurors in a variety of settings to try to see what jurors are saying about COVID, what their experiences are, whether the way they perceive COVID helps us understand better how they'll act as jurors in cases, uh, in particular, whether there's effects in med mal cases, because of, because of course, we've seen a lot of positive coverage of doctors and nurses, healthcare workers. And then also we've asked some interesting questions based on some of the work that Aboda is doing and others uh, about whether or not trials need to change. And if they don't change and we hold trials like we're used to, whether we're going to see different jurors and different juror selection effects as a result. You know, this is a uh, critically important topic for many of us for many reasons. But, you know, a day doesn't go by when I don't think about how amazing the technology is out here to allow lawyers to still do work on their cases, even when they're not in the office. But there is a bottleneck to this, you know, getting back. We can work up the case. We can take depositions. We can have hearings with judges all by Zoom. But there's a bottleneck jury trials. You know, how do you try a case with jurors in the in the current state of difficult knowledge regarding COVID. And I know there's a lot of meetings, uh, judges and other people who want to weigh in on how to get this done, how to open up that bottleneck. And there's a missing component to all this about what the jurors think about this. Do they want to come back and under what circumstances? So this seems to be an incredibly important topic, not just because we're all interested in it, but because we want to proceed. And there's a lot of decision makers that really need this information. Yeah, and I would just point out, too, I mean, today's June 18th, right? We are in St. Louis. I know in St. Louis City, St. Louis County, we're still not having jury trials. And so the process that the, the process of deciding what what we do next, how we begin with the trials, all of that has is still in the works, is still being discussed. And that's why I, I think that this information is critically important to, to, to help answer those questions. Where do we go next? What is the next jury selection going to look like? When they start, what will they look like? So it's certainly timely. Yeah, guys, you know, the, the thing that I've, that I've been hearing some as is, is we've been talking about this with people is, is that 
know, the problem is it doesn't set up to intuition, right? So if we try to guess what we think is going to happen with jurors, I think we don't have enough information like the virus itself that we're continuing to understand. We've never dealt with anything like this. So to guess what it does to juror psyches, what it does to how jurors perceive doctors, for example. And if you think about doctors, I mean, the first thing people think of when they hear that is, well, what will it do to medical malpractice cases? And I understand if you're a firm that has a bulk of of medical malpractice cases, you got to figure out what does this do? But if you think about it, in most injury cases, doctors play an important role as experts, as talking about injury. So it's a broader effect. And then beyond that, we know that both changing how jurors perceive the world might change how they perceive cases. But you can imagine competing sort of heuristics here. Well, if jurors are really stressed out, they'll think about themselves and not about the plaintiff. Or if jurors are really stressed out, they'll be able to sympathize more because they'll feel like a victim that they've, they've suffered harm and they can relate better to other people who've suffered harm. Which of those is true. They both sound logical, which, which is true. How about this? You know, who's going to show up and who does it help? You could make the case that you'll have more old jurors not coming because jurors over 60 or 65 might be perceived as more at risk and, in fact, are more at risk of complications with COVID. Well, does that mean that those jurors are automatically excused or that they work to not come or that when they say they're uncomfortable, a judge excuses them? Who does that help? On the flip side, we might say that we're going to have people who are less concerned about the virus in general, based on political orientation, for example, who are going to show up more or less. What does that do? And so our whole goal was, let's not guess at this. Let's start to get the data with the understanding that our understanding of the data will change over time, too. So we're committed to gathering it across cases across months and continuing to refine. But what, what I would, would enjoy doing you know, as we talk is I'll at least try to put some data points on where we think we are today. Excellent. Why don't we let you start with that? What are the basic issues you've been exploring and what, what are you finding out? I would break it into sort of two categories. One is, do people's views of COVID, well, maybe even three, do people's views of COVID tell us something about how they act in cases? The next would be, in particular, in cases in which a doctor is a, a party or maybe a doctor is a critical actor in the case in some way, is there something happening in those cases, particularly in medical malpractice cases, because we're seeing things in the news, for example, of doctors in Superman capes? And then the last would be, what do jurors think about going to trial? What do they think about getting a summons to come to jury duty? What do they think about sitting through selection? What do they think about the idea of sitting through a trial? And, and, and who, what does that mean? Who, who's going to try to avoid jury duty? What happens if we exclude all the people who say they're uncomfortable for a variety of reasons? And what does that mean for all of us that are going to try cases and pick juries? So we've kind of worked through those in, in, in different ways and gathered data to understand. On the front of what people think about COVID, we've asked over a thousand jurors to tell us their experience with COVID, their views on COVID, whether they're deeply worried, not worried at all, and ask questions about, does that predict how they behave? On the medical malpractice stuff, it's been really fun because we had some medical malpractice cases that we had run before COVID that we had studied independently in our company at Empirical Jury. So we had hundreds of jurors that had viewed those cases and produced data. We had detailed down to the 10th win rates, liability, damages, fault allocation, issues. And what we did was we just ran them again. And the only thing that had changed fundamentally in the atmosphere was COVID. And the question is, do we see differences? And if so, what what are they? So we can really do an A-B test, so to speak, or a natural experiment with uh, this sort of shock of COVID in the middle to create the change, if there is any. The idea of trials, I'm fascinated because I believe that we should be imagining better settings for jurors generally, and that we should imagine a more perfect jury trial overall. 
And maybe COVID provides an opportunity to think what that looks like. So we've been asking jurors about various trial options, measuring their preferences, and thinking about whether there's a way to go at trial that might mean we seat more constitutional and representative juries. So, John, what are some of the specific things that you studied and how did you study them? So we studied jurors in a few ways. One is, is that in, in, at this point, anytime we run a study on any case, we're also asking jurors a, a variety, of, a, sort of a battery of questions about COVID. Do you know somebody who's had COVID? Have you had COVID? Do you know someone who's been seriously affected or killed by COVID? How worried are you? Do you wear a mask? How do you view wearing masks? All sorts of things. And then we're just asking a very simple at the back end statistical question. Once we know how those jurors voted on a case, because we're showing them a real case and they're deciding a real case, then we ask, does COVID do anything? Do the answers to any of these questions correlate to being, you know, jurors who vote more for the plaintiff or the defense, who give more or less money? We're trying to sort those things out. So that's one way we've gone at it. And so that has been really interesting because we're getting some good, what I would call descriptive statistics, meaning we're just looking at what is the situation on the ground right now. And we see that 30% of the people we're surveying know someone who's had COVID. 17% know someone who became seriously ill or died from COVID. We're seeing that three out of four jurors report being nervous or somewhat nervous about being, uh, about attending a trial while COVID is still active and there's no vaccine. Stuff like that, that we can start to just know how prevalent are some of these views. And then the next interesting question is, do any of those views predict what jurors will do? And also what does it tell us about who might show up on any given day when we're trying to pick a jury. So I noticed, and you've gave us a copy of your report. It says analysis of impact of COVID-19 on jury attitudes, behavior, and willingness to serve. And in the first portion, you ask those questions that you've just talked about. You know, who's nervous, jurors nervous about trials? I think in your report, it shows 46% would attempt to avoid jury duty altogether. I mean, that's a big number, 46%. Three out of four are nervous. Sounds like the, the jurors don't want to be there. They do not want to come and, and, and be a part of the process. So with that said, who takes the brunt of that, John? I mean, who, who do they blame in, yeah, in terms good. of, I mean, if, if you got a jury pool and almost half of them are trying to get out of, I, mean, I don't know how many try to get out of jury duty now, even without the, or, or before, <laughs> even without the COVID, that was yeah. probably a pretty good percentage. But I think the thing that I saw that was interesting is three out of four are nervous about coming and serving as a juror at trial. And you would think that that would have some effect on, on it's going to hurt somebody, I would think. What, what, what did you find out? Maybe the first level takeaway here is if you're asking, if you are going to try a case, let's assume for a moment you're going to go try a case either because you decide you want to, or like I just talked to an attorney in California the other day who said, you know, we have strict rules about when cases must be resolved, almost like a speedy trial rule for civil cases. And we're getting judges who are saying, I have no authority to violate this five-year limit on getting a case completely resolved. So you're set. You're going to show up for trial. And we're going to try it because I don't know anything else to do. You see federal judges doing this to some degree in some jurisdictions because they they're monitored carefully about how long their case is penned. And they're saying, I got to get this set and I got to get it moved. So let's assume you got to go to trial. The first thing I'd say is you need a panel that's twice as big as you would have before. Because what what our data says is, yeah, three out of four people are nervous to be there. So now let's go through just a few high level points. Forty six percent of jurors say they'd actively seek to avoid jury duty because of COVID. 30% 30% of jurors say with it, they would ask to be excluded, specifically ask to be excluded because they don't like close spaces right now. Another 9% are on the other end. They say they would refuse to wear masks. 
because they don't believe it would be appropriate to require them to wear masks. But I think that means they'll almost certainly be excluded because most courts are suggesting at this point people would wear masks. We know that then we have jurors on top of that, right, who qualify. We think at least 20 percent of jurors would qualify for almost immediate exclusion because they have an underlying health condition or their age is such that a judge would likely say, if you want to be excluded, you can, and they would ask to be. So the, the first takeaway is, I think we're looking at 50% attrition in any panel. And so if I were asking for a panel and I thought normally I'd ask for 80, I probably need to ask the judge to try to get me 160. But I think we're just going to, they're going to drop like flies. That's the first level view. The next level view is if you can seat a jury in a somewhat traditional jury trial setting, who does it help? I guess the good news is, is I think it's largely a wash. So jurors who say they're not nervous are good for the defense. They help the defense by about 16%. That's on like the cases we studied. They drive up the win rate and value so that the functional sort of effect is about a 16% more valuable case for the defense. On the flip side, people who know someone seriously harmed and might still attend drive up the value slightly for the plaintiff. If I had to handicap it on the data we have so far, there is a slight benefit to the defense, but it is not dramatic in who will show up and ultimately be seated. That's sort of the good news. We also ask people, who do you blame for bringing us here? The court's going to get this one. The judge is not going to be very popular, or at least the court generally. They're the top group blamed. When it comes down to blaming the plaintiff and the defense, we're only talking about 20% of jurors or so, and they split pretty evenly among the plaintiff and defense. So we don't see any evidence. There were some early studies from AAJ in March that suggested the plaintiff would really get blamed for bringing this case to trial. We don't see that. Our data does not say that. It says it's roughly even. Big picture takeaway, it can be hard to seat a jury. If you get to seat a jury, I think the defense is probably slightly advantaged on net because you're going to have more of those jurors willing to attend. But I don't, I don't think that effect is dramatic. John, what was the date where you gathered this first batch of data? And do you have plans to gather another batch that you, so you can track progress as you go in through time? So we gathered this data largely in May and very early in June. Depending on kind of what data we're talking about, we gathered at slightly different times, but none of it was gathered. We, we worked not to gather it right in the teeth of March and very early April, because I think people were still sort of settling in, right, figuring this out. And to some degree, of course, they still are. But we needed a baseline and we thought we'd wait until at least a little bit of maybe the initial fear was wearing off. And so then we gathered all this data on all these sorts of things. One of the things I didn't mention, of course, is what we did gather is, you know, view of healthcare workers and things like that. Our plan is, is to, not in every study, but many of our future studies include these questions uh, so that we can track it over time and see if this effect, if any of the effects we're seeing are either intensifying or softening or if something new is showing up. It seems like this is critically important for policymakers to know. Well, yes, people are asking us for the information. We haven't officially published it. We think these effects are real and we've measured them in a lot of different ways. But I know, for example, ABOTA, the American Board of Trial Attorneys, which is made up of plaintiff and defense attorneys, has a committee dedicated, I believe it's a 10-person committee, dedicated to looking at what trials should look like in the future, which is deeply tied, of course, to these issues of what kind of trial should we have and can we seat jurors and does it benefit somebody in a way that's unfair? And we've been in communication with several of the, the people on that committee and are, are sharing the information in the hopes that it'll help inform, inform their recommendations. So, John, I know that you studied how jurors feel or their attitudes toward different trial options. So what, first question, what, what were the options and what did you find out? Yeah, so in a, in a very simple way, think of it as we had two at-home options and three at-court options. 
So the at-home options were ranging from what I would call somewhat radically different to, to similar. And in fact, has happened at least once in the last few months. So the at-home options were, what if you could watch trial, but you could watch it on your own schedule and you were just sort of required to watch a certain number of hours per day and conclude watching the whole trial at some point in a reasonable amount of time, but you could do it on your own schedule and you would be asked to prove that you're paying attention and that you've watched the videos in a meaningful way. And you'd be, you know, paid for your time in the same way jurors always are. The second option at home was you watch it, but you're just watching a live stream from court, but you do it in your own house. So you're watching the trial, but you don't come to court. Then there were three at court options. The three at court options were basically what a normal trial is now, but with a little bit of social distancing and masks, or we call you into the jury room. And now you either watch the trial on video at your own pace, but at court, or you just watch a live stream of it. And so essentially then you've got people choosing whether they want to stay at home or come to court and they're choosing whether they want to see the trial live streamed or live or whether they'd rather watch it at their own pace. Those were the five choices we gave them. The most popular choice picked by a little over 40% of the jurors was that they'd like to watch trial on demand, kind of like they watch Netflix, I guess. They'd like to watch trial on demand with a requirement they watch so many hours a day and conclude by a certain date, but that they get to set the pace. Of course, that would require some innovation, but I would argue, and you'll hear me say this a few times, I would argue that in the long term, it also has some significant advantages because it means that we would not see the 50% attrition that we're talking about. And if we really believe that what juries should be is a jury of peers and of a representative sample of the community, I think it's unacceptable to seat juries that exclude 50% of all citizens. And so in my view, it is a solution that could work with some thinking by a court. What we need is we need some courts that are willing to take a few risks and be pioneers to try a jury trial that is non-conventional, but that lets more people participate. And I'm happy to sort of walk through what that would look like. I assume you're familiar with the, I think it was a one day trial in Texas where it was on Zoom. And I'm, I'm curious as to, I know they had two judges, one of whom was there to watch the jurors and the other was to be the regular judge. And uh, as you're describing these things, I, I, I understand, you know, there's a lot of information coming in through video or live and, and all of these. What are your thoughts about how to make sure people are paying attention? I can imagine somebody being at home and they're kind of babysitting uh, with one eye and watching the trial with the other. What, what are your thoughts on how to make sure that under these, like the Netflix version, whether people are actually paying attention? I think we're talking about this with you guys in a future episode about what we do, which is we do online studies. And we have to face this question all the time. How do we make sure people are reading the materials, watching the videos, looking at the pictures, understanding the diagrams when we're not in their living room with them or we're not in their office with them? And and what I can tell you is there's there's accepted methods for doing this. There's there's accepted methods among researchers to verify that people are paying attention, to send signals to people they should pay attention, to root out people who don't pay attention. So let's take the Netflix version first. What that would look like is, is, you know, John Simon and his opponent go to court and they, they try their case, but there's no jury. The judge rules on objections. If the judge has to take a conference on something else, he or she does. And then when we're all done, the, video, the, the whole trial's been recorded, and a video editor using relatively simple software cuts out everything except the trial. So now the, the, the week and a half, two-week trial might only be 20 or 25 hours of material, right? Because we all know, any of us who've tried cases, that we've had days where we put on two hours of evidence. A witness didn't show up. The judge had an interruption, a juror, something happened with a juror. And before we know it, we put on two hours of evidence and went home. 
So we would instead present the case, edit it down to just the meat, just the video. There's some advantages here. For example, if there's a piece of evidence that comes in and then later the judge thinks, oh, shouldn't have come in and reverses the ruling, we don't have a mistrial. We just cut it out. There's other advantages that we don't have jurors sitting in a jury room waiting for four hours and getting frustrated and then coming out and being mad at everybody for making them wait. So when we take that video, the Netflix version of the trial, and we tell jurors they need to watch, say, four hours a day uh, and that they should be done in five days because there's 20 hours. Well, what you would do is the attorneys, it could be as simple as the attorneys have to submit and agree upon five or 10 questions per day that if you watch the video, you'd know the answer to. And if you didn't watch, you wouldn't. And then you ask the jurors at the end of each day those questions and you tell them that that's going to happen and you signal to them that they should pay attention and you recruit enough jurors that if some don't, that's okay. You, you route them out and when you're done with the week, you have enough jurors to make a jury. And then you've got people you know watched and you know they saw it all and you know they've answered questions to show that they were paying attention. And what you have are jurors who are at least as informed as jurors who can easily fall asleep in the box. We've all seen that or who are clearly doodling, who are clearly staring off into space. I mean, I think we can at least simulate as good as we get in a jury box. The advantage would be that if you're a 75-year-old person with you know, COPD, problems with your lungs, there's no way you're going to sit in a jury trial, but you could sit in this. So if I were doing the Netflix version, that's what we do. And then we put them on Zoom for the deliberation. What they did in Texas is they did a live stream and they made sure jurors were watching. You know, I don't know if that's much better. One of the jurors took a phone call during trial. They didn't excuse them. What, what, what could they do? So I'm not sure having a judge monitor the jurors and say, I'm watching your face means they're paying a whole lot more attention than some basic attention checks and maybe some basic comprehension checks would do. I think the, the what you've been calling the Netflix version, I would think people would be more attentive and miss less because you can pause it. Right. If you if you have to go do something or you're distracted, the phone call, you you pause it and you really it's and I'm assuming they can rewind. Yeah, can you can they? rewind, you can rewatch it again. Um, I mean, you can make it any way you want. But, yeah, you can imagine that they, they go. I didn't hear that. Well, watch it again. Right. And, and the thing is, is if you take away the hard parts of jury duty, I mean, this is where I would say we, we should see this as an opportunity. We have an overwhelming number of people who are who are so upset when they get a jury summons. Why? You drag them down to court. You take them out of work. They sit in a room for a really long time and then sometimes are told to go home at the end of the day without ever having done anything, right? People like watching Netflix and jury trials, despite the, the what other people would say, we all know are actually pretty fun sometimes, right? There's people arguing, there's cool stuff, there's animations, there's diagrams, there, there's stuff that jurors will watch. If we gave it to them in a way they're used to consuming it, right? I think they would consume it. They'd pay at least as much attention and the cool thing would be is that we could start avoiding some of the selection effects that we're seeing because I, you know, I have a real beef with the idea that you can, you can call a jury, for example, in the city of St. Louis, and that jury might not look or seem anything like if we took a representative population sample. That's a problem. I don't think that's what the Constitution suggests a jury should be. It should be the community, not the community who can make it to court that day because they can afford to miss work. So what if we made you know, it easier John, for jurors to do ahead. this? So the thing on my mind as I'm listening to this is obviously there are advantages less, you know, more convenient for the jurors, which are good things. And do you have any information? Have you talked to or focused the attorneys to see what attorneys think about this? Yeah, attorneys, John, as you can imagine, when I, I don't have data on attorneys, but I talk to a lot of them about it. And I can tell you that, yeah, I think they're resistant. And I think judges will be too. I mean, I, I, I don't sugarcoat the challenges of implementing a system like this, 
But that's the law for better and worse. I don't know why it is. I have some theories, but I think as a, as a profession, we tend to evolve somewhat slowly. We tend to integrate technology late. We're, we're late adapters. Part of it is because some of us became lawyers because we were sort of actively avoiding science. We were actively avoiding math. Part of it is because in a lot of our law offices, unless you work in an IP practice or a patent practice or something, you don't have many people talking about tech or coding or software. Or, and so I, I think we tend to be a little slow. But I think this is a chance for us to step out and, and try to take some chances. What if instead we sat juries of 40 or 50 because they could watch it at home on their own time and we took out some of the randomness? Well, we could all predict results better and we would have less of the results that are radically out of line. And at least as a plaintiff's attorney, I like that idea because some of the research we've done at the University of Denver says that right now, if you don't allow jury selection or, or meaningful jury selection and you seat a jury, it will benefit the defense more often than the plaintiff because biases run that way more often than they do for the plaintiff. That means you could spend three years for your client working up a case. Your client could spend three years waiting for the trial. You could have six jurors seated. Two of them could believe a plaintiff should never win and all lawsuits are bad. And everything that happened before that didn't matter because those two jurors weren't listening. I don't believe that's the constitutional jury uh, that was imagined. We would eliminate those effects if we could seat bigger jurors that are more inclusive and more representative of populations. We would John, also mean that lawyers could predict outcomes better and resolve more cases. What about Vordire? How does that fit into this? Well, you can do it two ways, right? I mean, so you could have Vordire on questionnaires. And you can do Vordire, much like we're doing this remotely. You can talk with jurors and, and with a little bit of work, right? We can implement those solutions. One advantage I'll mention too, if you did this at the courthouse, it's not nearly as convenient for people, but you could distance them for COVID and you could provide them iPads so that you would get past one technological hurdle, which is what about somebody who doesn't have broadband or whatever, right? So we'd have to deal with those issues, but you know, schools are dealing with those issues right now. We're learning as a society how to deal with the fact some people can't get online and watch a streaming video and we're getting better at it. John, I'll, I'll give you the, the, more com the more common answer and then the more radical one. The common answer would be just you could still do Vordier. You could still talk to them. We'll need to do it either in a group or individually. We could use questionnaires first so that we have some people we just know we don't need to talk to. You could also eliminate Vordier and seat juries of 75 and then have a rule of decision that when they vote at the end, a certain number means the plaintiff wins and less than that number means they don't. Because if you think about what deliberation is, it's really fact checking. We put people in a room and we have them talk with each other. And what we know from the Arizona Jury Project and other studies where they studied real juries is that somebody says, well, he said the light was green. And three jurors say, no, I've got it in my notes right here. This witness said the light was red and nobody said it was green. And that juror, the juror who was wrong because he was asleep, says, oh, OK. And they fact correct. And that's what deliberation does. It gets us to a common set of facts and then it bats around the issues and hopefully we get a good answer. The other way to get that is to have enough people that any mistakes and lack of attention and lack of understanding is washed out by a bigger sample. That's what we do when we vote, right? We don't deliberate who will be president. We vote. And we assume that if we have enough people who vote, we'll get a reasonable answer. At least we'll get the sense of the population, whether we like the answer or not. That's the theory um, anyway. Could, that's right. That's the theory. <laughs> but we could do the same thing, right? There's two ways to go at it. You could have Bordier, or I could imagine a futuristic world in another country that's implementing jury trials in which they say, we're going to get rid of Bordier, but we're going to have juries of 100. And if 60% agree, the plaintiff wins. So I am having a really hard time getting comfortable with remote, anything remote as far as jury trials. And I, obviously it's because it's, it's so far removed from the way I've been doing it my, my whole career. 
but just a couple things come to mind. One is the relationship building and the bonding that takes place between the jurors. And you can see that happening when they're holding the door. One's holding the door for the other. They go to lunch together. They're joking around about something. And the coalition building, the bonding, things like that, there's no opportunity for that to take place. And they're really deliberating as strangers. And, and I think that may impede compromise, okay? But the other thing that, that I think is even more important is, as you guys know, we, we communicate. 80% of our communication is nonverbal. Looking at the facial expression of a juror or jurors, that's gold. I mean, I learned so much just from watching that jury panel, seeing how they're reacting to certain witnesses, seeing how they're reacting to one of the attorneys, reacting to a specific question. You might hear a gasp or you might hear somebody laugh. All of those things are make or break moments sometimes in a trial. And and just re removing that just seems like it's so sterile. It's, it's kind of like what the NBA players are talking about, playing their games in an empty arena. Talk about taking away. It's, uh, I don't know. I think um, having the group together and, and being able to deliberate, it is a new world. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about these things and the, the, you know, the possibilities are really endless in terms of how you could do it. But part of me thinks that it's just not nearly as effective. But on the other hand, I guess I mean, if you put the evidence out, you're still able to elicit the evidence the way you want. And if you have 75 people voting instead of six people deliberating and looking for a unanimous decision, I can, I can see the, you know, some of the benefits there. John, I was just going to tell you, I would say I completely agree. There are always trade-offs, even though it feels uncomfortable because the danger, in, particularly in courts without Bordier, is that you do everything right. You connect with all those jurors and you sat three tort reformers who deeply believe that you should never win a case and will not listen. And I, I think we're getting hurt by that around the country right now. We have states that only give 20 minutes of selection. We have federal judges who don't allow attorneys to ask questions. We just did a study at the University of Denver, uh, along with Lee Ross at Stanford, Valerie Hahn at Cornell, and Jessica Salerno at Arizona State. We studied 2,000 jurors. And what we found is, is that about 30% of jurors believe the burden of proof is too low for civil attorneys, that the plaintiff should have a higher burden. When they believe that, they vote for the defense more often. And even when we showed them a judge rehabilitating them and saying, can you please follow the instructions and you'll put your personal views aside, it didn't change anything at all. They still hurt the plaintiff. If people say they don't believe in non-economic damages and they swear up and down that they'll follow the instructions anyway, they don't. If people say they believe in caps and then they say, but I can set that aside, they don't. And those views, there were, there were 30 some percent that believe the burden of proof was too low for plaintiffs. There were about 3% who thought it was too high. And so what we're seeing across the country is if you can pick the jury, you can see a fair one. If you can't, it is my view that more often than not, the plaintiff gets hurt. Um, so that would be my pushback. Now, the flip side is to, to, to take your point. It's, it's even worse than the NBA model because in the NBA, they're worried about playing without fans. We're talking about playing without the fans, but then letting the fans vote. <laughs> so that's the, <laughs> I mean, so yeah, is that a scary idea? Sure. So, I mean, you know, what will probably end up within most of the country is, is distance trials where people wear masks and sit a little further apart and still form some of those relationships. And the attorney is probably also presenting in a mask if we're doing it right. What I will tell you is of the five choices I described earlier, that was the least popular among jurors and will exclude the most people who either say, I simply won't do it or I really don't want to. In the age of COVID, maybe we ought to rethink jury trials. If we're going to do them the traditional way, I think it's unconstitutional not to allow attorney-led voir dire 
on both general issues of civil cases as well as specific case issues. And, you know, we're all Missouri lawyers. We're all licensed in Missouri. You guys practice in Missouri uh, a lot, although you both have, you know, much broader practices too. We're sort of spoiled with the idea that a judge will give us a day to pick a jury. I now live in Colorado where the, the presumption is you get 20 minutes per side. Wow. And 20 minutes per side to pick through 40 jurors, you have 30 seconds per juror. So what you do is you sit down at a roulette wheel and hope to God that there's not enough people in the first six or nine seats that you'll never get to even have your case heard fairly. And I think we have to get past that. So a selfless plug, we have a, a paper that proves that this needs to be done. And if it isn't, you will seat juries that can't hear evidence. And that was published by the Civil Justice Research Institute. And it studies 2000 jurors. It also proves for all those attorneys who are sick of rehabilitation in which a judge says, all right, well, I know you just said that you hate plaintiff's lawyers or you hate defense lawyers or you hate all lawyers or you hate companies or you hate plaintiffs or whatever, but can you set that aside and be fair? It also shows that that intervention does nothing. And if it does anything at all, the only thing it does is make the jurors a little more blind to their own bias during deliberation. If anything, it makes them a little worse jurors, not better. My radical idea, maybe we should rethink how we try cases. My simple idea We've got to allow meaningful selection in every case so that we can seat people who don't already have predisposed views that mean they won't hear the evidence that's so critical to these people who only have one case and whose lives will be changed by the result. John, the, uh, you know, the idea of a Netflix trial and uh, you know, proposing larger juries like that, this is all scary stuff to those of us who've done things the way we've done them for, for a long time. And I'm not, I'm not convinced I know the answer yet. And I think this is going to require a lot of discussion by policymakers. But what's interesting to me is that I can't think of another profession where path dependence doesn't dictate what we do more than the legal profession. I mean, we, the, the whole idea of stare decisis, you know, we'd never pick an engineer who does something because they used to do it that way. Or that, you know, we, we start the trial by saying, hear you, hear you, using language that you know, words that were probably not uh, in existence in, until shortly after the birth of the English language. And what the problem is, is we're being smashed up against COVID and an, a, an increasingly uh, mounting trial load that's not moving. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, if we, if we can break the bottleneck in some way rather than not at all, or if the virus keeps, keeps us where we are, uh, this is going to be very interesting it is scary. There's so much interesting stuff that's just been thrown around in the last five minutes. It's hard to pick it all off the floor, but we're going to break this episode into two. So this has been a great conversation so far. We're looking forward to having you come back for part two on online focus groups. So for now, we're going to take a pause. I was so excited about this call because the two people I have on this call are the two people who single-handedly taught me to be a lawyer. There is absolutely no doubt that I would not be the lawyer I am or doing what I'm doing in any way, if Eric didn't bring me into the firm and John, if I didn't get to come down to your office and listen to you, there are not two lawyers on earth who did more for me than the two of you. So this is sort of a, this is a dream. So thank you, John. Thank you so great, much. It was a great synergy. It was, it's, uh, those were 10 years that I would never trade for anything working with the two of you. And it's great to continue the uh, relationship on this call and thank you for coming and, and sharing your innovative system. This has been wonderful stuff. I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of conversation spinning off of this two-part uh, episode on online focus groups. So we'll, we'll end it here for now. Thank you. Uh, this has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beef. I'm John Simon. Look forward to seeing you next time on The Jury Is Out. 
John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com. 